welcome to the SAP HCM Insights Podcast with uh, your host and moderator and uh, all-around good guy, me, Steve Bogner. We have Brandon Toombs and Becky Murray and Sven Ringling, as usual. Hey, guys. All right, so um, this podcast, our topic is uh, going to be, you know, everyone likes to talk about what you should do, right, and good practices or, or best practices which I don't think any of us like the best practices terminology, but we want to talk about what are the, the things, you know, the best practices, the good practices. We're going to flip that upside down. Uh, we're going to talk about what are the worst practices that you can have going into an SAP SuccessFactors project, whether it's a new implementation or an extension of your footprint or an acquisition or whatever. What are some of these worst practices that we've seen and we try to avoid? Um, can't always avoid them, I think. Uh, sometimes it's difficult, but uh, we want to talk about what those bad practices are because I think that, um, you know, we, 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 we have a reason for it, right? We have a reason we call them bad practices. It's because they don't lead to good outcomes. And I think we're all really invested in customers and clients having good outcomes in all the work we do. Um, that's, that's why we're here. All right. So uh, we're going to go around here and talk about um, our sort of pet peeves and worst practices. I'm gonna start with you, Brandon. So what are a couple of the worst practices that, that you come across? Yeah, so Steve, um, the, the first one I want to talk about is uh, the mantra I hear sometimes from customers, um, with, which I understand where it's coming from, but it's still very uh, problematic. And that is, um, we can't go backwards in functionality. Um, so we'll, I'll hear this sometimes, and usually it has to do with there's some real specific quirky way that the old system does something. So it visualizes something in a certain way, and there's, they ask a really kind of obscure question. Well, why doesn't the system do do X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, well, it, you know, success factors does things in a different way. And then they come back and say, well, yeah, but our old system does it this other way, and we can't go backwards in functionality. Um, and, you know, it's at that point that you, you know, you really have to kind of uh, talk to, you know, uh, kind of make sure that everybody understands that you're going to a different system and, and different systems have different ways of doing things. And um, while there, it's not going to be 100% better in every uh, possible minute de detail, hopefully on balance, you are going to be getting a better solution. So. The, the idea that um, you have to uh, make sure that that uh, that uh, uh, step by step, every specific detail is better in your new system. That is uh, something that's got to be very, uh, you know, it's dangerous. And I try to make sure that I communicate this at the outset that um, the we can't go backwards in functionality is not something that you can live by and be successful on your project. Boy, that's a tough one, though, Brandon. That's a tough one for a lot of customers. Mm, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, I, I've seen it several times and sometimes, you know, you're successful with that, right? And other times you're not. And I've seen people sort of build bolt-ons and add-ons and all sorts of weird customizations. And then, uh, you know, a couple of years down the road, upgrades and stuff happen and uh, it doesn't sort of fit as well as it used to. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons you, you know, uh, advise against it. Yeah, I mean, I would say 
you know, you have to get uh, you have to get to the, the, the bottom of what the reason is for it. If it is just because the other system had a cool way of doing something that uh, that you that you really like, that's one thing. Is it? But is there an underlying requirement? Is there like a there's a business practice that that the old system um, was enabling that was actually critical to the business? Um, most likely not. But if there is, that's where you have to uh, you know have a longer conversation. But most of the time, what I'm talking about are are, are things that really aren't that don't fall in that category. They're not true business requirements. They're just a, a, a way that the old system did things. To change management issue. Yep. All right, Becky, what do you have? What's one of your uh, worst practices that you, you've seen? All right, one of my worst practices is what I call um, backloading the project plan. Mm. Um, you know, how we used to do things is we'd gather requirements, we'd go away and build the system for several months, and then we would come back and present the system, do things like data conversions and integrations and what have you. Um, I find that that backloading the project plan with those master data efforts and discussing and building integrations, if you are leaving those to the end, you're too late. <laughs> um, yeah. With kind of these newer, faster deployment methods, um, you really need to be talking about master data and integrations right from the start of your project. Um, in many cases, the requirements around master data and integrations out to third-party systems will actually dictate some of your configuration. So if you're not having conversations around these topics right from the start, you might miss some requirements. Um, and then you might find yourself at a pause in the project because now you all of a sudden have to gather master data to put into the system and no one's bothered to find out where it is and who owns it and maybe you've got a different system in each country and it's going to take a little bit of an effort to consolidate it and oh by the way no one speaks Chinese to get the data out of a system that's in China and, you know you need someone to facilitate that so Kind of backloading some of these integral pieces of a project into the end of a project plan, um, you know, with these faster deployment methodologies, it just doesn't work anymore. No, no. Wow. Yeah, that's good. That's that's a good one. I've I've seen that happen all, all too all too often. In fact, I've, I've presented project plans where people look at it and say, "Well, what are we doing for the last two or three months?" It's and all I have there's payroll testing, parallel testing, right? Which is one of my things. It's like, well, what's the HR team going to do? What's the benefits team? What are they going to do? They're going to wait for three months. Yeah. They won't. No, trust me. You know, yeah, make the back end a little lighter because you know, um, you know, try to do those things up front because some things will will get delayed, right? Yep. Yep. Even things like training. Yeah. That training can be like an ongoing initiative right from the start. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, Sven. What do you have? What's one of the worst practices you come across? Uh, I actually take my second point first because it kind of fits with the, with the backloading or should I say procrastination uh, point uh, Becky had and it's about avoiding uh, difficult conversations or, or hoping they are not going to happen but in the end they are happening so whether that's um, difficult stakeholders like uh, Maggie in, in Germany works councils or the data protection officer almost anywhere in the world or just a, a Difficult board member, the CFO was known to always find uh, some some problems in any design. Uh, we know that these guys will at some point uh, have something to say. So involve them from the beginning rather than saying, oh, they haven't asked us yet. So 
let's keep a low profile, hope they don't realize we are implementing a completely new system by the 1st of January, and maybe we get away of it, we won't. And then they ask the difficult question uh, on the 2nd of December, and, and you can basically uh, go back to square one uh, with your whole project. So I think it's it's human, um, and it's nothing yeah. specific to success factors or HR tech or anything. Um, but it, it can really derail projects. So let's involve those people as early as possible and, and see how we can get them on board. That's a great point. Yeah, difficult conversations earlier, the better. And, you know, because you work through those and then you can make those people allies instead of obstacles. So um, one of the ones that I come across a lot, and I've kind of touched on it already, is um, having two or three months at the end of a project for parallel testing for payroll. And I'm a payroll guy, and it's really important to me that we have parallel testing, two pay, two pay periods at a minimum, maybe three, depends on how it goes and what the project is like. Um, but one of the worst practices I see is where people compress that time, and they they compress that time on the back end, and they say, well, you just only have to run a couple of pay periods, and maybe just with a sample population, and you know, what's the big deal? We need all this time to get everything else done, and we've got to go live and and the back end of that project gets really compressed, and it's bad for payroll, payroll parallel testing. And you know, one of the things is when you go live with a new HR system, most people are going to judge its success based on did people get paid correctly. <clears throat> and, you know, if you don't do a good job on parallel testing, uh, and the, at the end of your project, I can guarantee you're not going to have a successful go live because. Parallel testing not only does it prove out the payroll calculations, but it also uh, flexes your data migration and cutover strategy. It flexes your processes, your interfaces, all these other things. And so, um, you know, one of the bad practices I see is when a, a project manager, typically someone who doesn't know payroll or even doesn't know HR, says, well, you know, within a month after user acceptance testing, we can be ready for go live. And that's just not the case. Don't do that. Uh, fight it all the way if you need help. Uh, enlist any one of the four of us and we can come and tell you some horror stories. And, uh, you know, when you go to a, a, a payroll outsourcing firm like, uh, you know, ADP or any one of the others, they'll have a project plan that has a couple periods of parallel testing at the end. You know, they do payroll. That's what they do, and and that's their best practice. So, I think that it makes sense to uh, pull that into every project. Yeah, you know, Steve, it's payroll one of those things where people will notice if it's not right. Um, in some locales, as you know, there are you know fines or penalties for not paying. Yeah, for sure. So there are compliance issues, um, and it's not something that you can fix after go live. <laughs> you know, like you want that to be right from the start. Yeah. People's first experience will be did they get paid? Did they get paid correctly? Um, as, yeah. as painful as it is to to take the time and go through that effort, it's so much easier to correct payroll mistakes before go live than after go live. I mean, if you make payroll mistakes after go live, you're materially impacting someone's life. You have to uh, you have an employee satisfaction issue at that point. Talk about human experience management. You just failed. Um, and then you have to make corrections and the corrections take a lot of time and payroll and some of these, uh, projects you see that end up in the news is because payroll failed. And why did payroll fail? Well, because it wasn't tested well enough. In my opinion. All right. So, Brandon, what else do you have? Okay. So, um, 
for my for my next one, I I, I have something um, called or or uh, I would say avoid hero ball. Um, Okay, so what does that mean? Okay, so that's kind of a basketball term. Uh, it means uh, if you've got a, the best player on your team and all of a sudden they're just gonna like, well, okay, I'm just going to take this game over and I'm just going to, I'm not going to pass the ball. I'm just going to uh, shoot it every time because I'm the one that's most likely to make it. Well, um, that it really has some diminishing returns. And ultimately, you, most of the time, those, those teams end up failing if that person uh, can't get other people involved. Uh, same thing can happen on, on clients uh, and on projects. I've seen it happen on more than one occasion. And what happens is you've got this person who's who thinks, okay, I'm the right person. I know everything. Um, I I have the best judgment. And it's usually like uh, it can be like a project manager or it can be a key member of the team that's just been around for a very long time. Um, in both of these cases, what happens is um, there is no way that you can have any meeting without this person in it. And that and that person is the person who is ultimately making all the decisions. And so everybody else just kind of the dynamic really evolves into something that's that's really not healthy. And everybody else is just kind of sitting around waiting around, even if they are, are smart and they can make some of those decisions, um, they mm -hmm. stop doing it. And it, it's just this one person, it, it, they become a bottleneck. Next thing you know, um, uh, you get you get way way behind, and um, all of a sudden that person ultimately will end up um, in a lot of cases will burn out anyway. Uh, so it just it, it's a very much a recipe for failure uh, to just have one person or uh, you know particularly um, having specifically one person, one project manager who is, who thinks they're the be all and end all, and so that's uh, that's a very um, that's a very uh, Bad place to be, and again, it's kind of like the same thing as in the NBA when you have uh, someone playing hero ball. It's not going to be successful. Yeah, that's a good point. And the, I've seen consultants in that role too, Brandon. Yeah, you know, where absolutely. The consultant is like, we can't do anything unless Brandon says it's okay. Brandon's got to be in every meeting, and there's only so much of Brandon to go around. And it's just, yeah, it's bad. It's bad. Yeah. All right, Becky, what else do you have? Um, you know, kind of uh, moving off of Brandon's topic or kind of parlaying onto that around team structure, or team um, components. I think it's um, it's never successful or hardly ever successful um, when you've got one kind of siloed group making all these decisions for a larger organization. And what I mean is perhaps you have a group at headquarters um, who supports, you know, regional different groups or perhaps they're headquartered in one country, but you're a multinational or global organization, and you don't list the help of local champions um, to make sure that you are accounting for local requirements that people in this, you know, headquarters group may not be aware of, um, but also for the purpose of having a local champion when it comes time to use and adopt the system. Yeah. Uh, then you don't have buy-in from anyone at the different areas that are, you know, the people who are going to be using this system. Um, so definitely find and involve local champions right from the start, make them a part of the process. That way you're making sure that local requirements are being gathered and accounted for. Also that you have local um, uh, buy-in for adoption. And then ultimately, if these people are participating in the project from the start, and they're engaging in the use cases and the training as well. So then you've got people um, who are trained in your different, you know, satellite or regional multinational type locations who already know how to use the system. 
here I think of, oh, we don't want too many people to be involved. And that's true, you don't want too many people involved, um, but you wanna make sure you're involving some people, especially if you're a multinational organization. You don't want to dictate all of the policies right from headquarters. You wanna make sure you're getting a really well-rounded view of what your different uh, locations and geos might have a need for. Yeah, so it reminds me of what Sven said before about having the tough conversations up front. And that includes reaching out to those other countries and regions to have those conversations. I mean, sometimes you don't want to because you know that it's going to be tough. But um, yeah, like you, like you said, Sven, it's better to do that earlier versus later. Absolutely. All right, Sven, what else do you have? Yeah, um, yeah. My second one is, is really about uh, project methodology. Um, whether we call it the SAP Activate or Agile or Prototype, whatever. Um, I think nobody is still arguing for this uh, this methodology. I didn't like even in the 90s where uh, consultants uh, talk to customers for four months and, and write something in paper and then go away and, and build it and then say, this is what you said you want. And the customer says, oh, no, we, we thought it looks completely different. We all know this game, uh, hopefully not from personal experience, from, from, from stories or from um, project rescues we, we have to do. But I think nobody in their right mind is arguing this anymore. But we are pretty much to what uh, SAP calls activate with a more iterative approach where we start uh, touching and looking at the system early on um, and then have uh, a number of iterations, say three is a, is a good number um, to get better and better until we, we are in the, in the final iteration. I think that's uh, by and large a good uh, methodology. There are lots of variations. Probably every, um, every consulting partner has their own brand, which is obviously the best and only possible uh, if, if you uh, listen to them. Um, but I think sometimes you you, you get um, kind of extreme versions of it, and I think the the middle of the road is, is usually the best. But the one um, the one I've seen, especially in the early days of Success Factors projects, is that the definition is in the at the beginning of the iteration we talk about the requirements, we throw the Excel workbooks at the customer and make it their duty to fill them in. Because at the end of the day, the name of the game is not taking any responsibility as a consultant and put all the blame on the on the customer. Yeah. Um, then collect those workbooks, send them to an offshore location, um, have people to like uh, um, implement what the workbook says at the high margin, and then come back for the iteration and probably also cause a shock with the customer. I don't think that works. Um, apparently some projects went live with this, but it has to be a, a genius customer or a very simple project. Uh, but anything that get, goes close to that, to really have it compartmentalized and no, no conversations uh, in, in the configuration stage, it, for my mind, doesn't work. Um, but then you, you also have the, the other extremes where people say, oh, why do we need to be in this core set of uh, three iterations? Um, then I look at the system and I see something I don't like. I call the consultant immediately and ask them, can you change that? So we kind of have 1,700 iterations and completely lose control and we never um, 
we never have a point where we need to finish something and, and that project is probably never ending and has a um, just a moving go life probably every three, three months you move the go life for another three months so i think somewhere in the middle i think the iteration model is good but uh, don't send things away to people who are sitting in the dark room configuring without actually talking to the customer um if you if you look at your workbook or your your uh, notes and you think what the hell did they mean by this in the middle of your configuration pick up the phone uh, schedule a meeting with the customer talk it through even if it's not like a workshop time um but by and large stick to the to the three two four iterations between i think that's what i think works best but yeah as i said the middle of the road yeah, I mean, our listeners can't see it, our video, but we're all nodding our heads in agreement up and down when you were saying all of that. It, it has been the model for a long time for, for some firms to do it that way, right? Um, it just, the, it to me, it, it increased, the, the longer you make this feedback loop from the time someone tells you what to do to the time that you show them how you did it, the longer that feedback loop is, the worse your project is going to be, right? So um, that means having... I mean, if you do send it away to someone to configure, have them be very available, right? And have them be involved in the project. It's just not this labor arbitrage thing, right? Like you said, you know, um, find some some cheap talent and charge a lot for it because then you make a lot of money. That's um, that's good for the consulting project's profit, but it's not so good for customers. Yeah, which sort of um, ties in a little bit to the, the second uh, worst practice that I've seen, which is, again, it's, it's very payroll focused, right? But it's um, assuming that uh, payroll interfaces and reports are simple, and that you can go get some sort of generic and cheap programming resources to make that happen. And honestly, the exact opposite is true. Um, Payroll data is extremely complex. Payroll interfaces are complex. Um, payroll data migrations are complex. It's not a lot about payroll that is simple. And you, you want to go into your interfacing uh, payroll data with some sort of framework, some sort of standards, because you don't want one interface to look at payroll data differently than another, because then you'll get inconsistent results. You don't want your payroll reporting to have a different framework than your payroll interfacing because then your reports and your interfaces won't ever tie together. So all of that takes experience. Um, and, you know, it's not that you have to have every developer doing these things uh, be an expert, but you need to have um, one or two developers in there who are very experienced at doing this, who have done it before, done it successfully, that will approach it with a standard approach and a, a put in some standards and some high quality work and they can they can train and guide less senior developers to do things right and they can oversee the work and they can train and develop even train and develop your internal people to do the same sort of thing which i think is actually the best way to go um, i like it on a project where i can bring in a very senior developer and have them work with the customer's internal resources because then when we go away, those internal resources know what to do. They're good at it. Um, but, you know, one of the, it's, it's just bad to assume that payroll interfacing and reporting and data migration is just simple. I mean, it's just payroll, right? 
Um, but I've made a, a almost a 30 year career now out of just payroll and it's complicated. So, I mean, I think what else do we have guys that we want to add? Is there anything big that we've, we've missed here? We've come up with, I think now eight or nine, maybe 10 different things. Um, what are we missing? I think it's, it's been mentioned uh, a few times in, in various shapes, but I think you can't emphasize it enough that anything that deals with integration and moving data from A to B, whether it's for migration or, or integration, um, you can't overestimate it. Um, and, but it's the most underestimated or, or undersold thing in, in sales pitches. Sometimes you think that salespeople um, I think that being able to throw an arrow between two boxes on a PowerPoint slide is like proving that integration is easy. Um, and it, it's, yeah, we know that it's more than more than the, the picture. So I think we can't emphasize this enough. To, anyway, you can reduce complexity and in integrations, and you will be happy with it later. And one of those complexities I always try to remove is bidirectional integrations where data flows to the directions, especially data of the same data objects going both directions. And trying to avoid that will, will always save you trouble uh, in the rest of your life, probably. The, I guess one other thing I would say um, is that another worst practice is always saying yes to the customer. Um, if you are some, uh, if you're someone, of course, we all want to please the customer. Um, but a lot of times, what happens is, particularly if you are inexperienced, uh, you don't want to push back and say something can't be done because you may not know that it can't be done. So, the, what's the easiest thing for you to do? It's to say yes, we can do that. And of course, uh, customers are all too happy to hear that word. Um, they want to hear yes. I, I got into a little bit of a Twitter discussion. I, I finally just shut it down because I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere um, with an, an HR CEO um, who. To, um, they were basically, you know, their 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 intent or their their uh, uh, sentiment was basically, you know, ultimately your job is you're the uh, you're, you're the provider and you're supposed to provide to me what I want. Um, and I don't think that that is our job as consultants. Our job is to try to uh, look at the big picture, say, uh, understand what we bring to the table is um, number one. We know that we know the solution a lot more than you do. Um, number two, we have worked with a, with a lot of customers in the past, and we hopefully have stayed in touch with them and seen the outcomes from the decisions that were that, that are being made. And a lot of times, it, it's up to us to be able to say. Eh, I, I don't think that's the right thing to do, and let me tell you why. So this idea that you know we can just at some point the the shutdown of the argument is when the uh, uh, when the when the high up uh, person in HR says, well, well, you're going to make this happen, or or else, um, you know, that's ultimately probably not going to end up really successful because if you're going away from what you're what makes the system successful. Um, you know, you may be able to uh, duct tape and bail and wire in something for them, but, uh, you know, it, a lot of times, ultimately it's not going to end well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I agree. And I've been, I've been guilty of that, you know, earlier in my career, of, uh, I think saying, you know, not being afraid to say no, but also being overconfident in my abilities at the time. And, you know, you get you yourself and your customer into a bad situation. So, um. Yeah, bad practices going outside those system boundaries, right? And um, and trying to make it flex where it's not supposed to flex. 
Yeah. Yep. Wow. Well, well, you know, you can... Sorry, go ahead. An important point um, in, in, a, in a half sentence. We've done it with lots of customers in state in touch. And this reminds me of, of one actually worse practice for uh, consultancies. Um, because if, if consultancies have separate teams for implementation and support, um, you actually have implementation teams who don't see how the system actually develops over a couple of years and what their initial design decisions really cause. And you have support consultants who, who like live in this death by ticket environment and have problems to see the big picture. I think, uh, and customers sometimes ask for it because they think support consultants should be much cheaper. Uh, like half the rate uh, uh, like from implementation concerns, and then they get into the kind of scheme. And I think in the long run, it doesn't give you the best result. I think everyone should have to support their own work. But they put in. <laughs> yeah, it's like if you're a chef and you never eat your own, your your the food you cook, right? How do you know it's good? Yeah. How do you know it's Seriously. good? Yeah. That's I've I've learned over the years because I, I thought, okay, this this should work, and then it gets into production and it's like, yeah, not so much. But then it gives me the feedback to make it better the next time. Right? That's yeah. how you get better. Those feedback loops. Yes. All right, guys. Well, thanks for all these worst practices. This is this is fun. I like talking about the bad stuff. It's <laughs> Nameless, right? I've taken responsibility for some of mine. Um and uh, but yeah, so you know maybe someday we'll attach names to all of these. Absolutely, I think these are probably all things over the years we've learned the hard way. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think so. Nobody's just learning from the textbook. There's a textbook for this. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, Brandon. Yes. has written some books. Yeah, That's right. uh, I wouldn't call anything a textbook. Read the book, and then I'm good to go. Yeah. Okay, thanks.